You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from us for the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to get him, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel of Mark. Guys, we made it. Okay, don't cheer yet because we're not through it yet. And uh, this final leg may actually, we will discover it's a little bit more arduous than maybe we planned. The great storyteller, J.R.R. Tolkien, once said that there is a mark of any great story. He said, if you, you look at any great story, you'll find a repeated thing. And he says, no matter how wild the events in the story get or how tense the adventure, what really truly gives people, what he described as that catch of the breath or the swell in the heart is that sudden, joyous turn of events. When the story is pregnant with suspense, all hope is lost, there's no way out, things are dark, things are grim, defeat is imminent, the story's over, go home, it's done. And then all of a sudden, um, that unforeseen, miraculous something breaks into the story and opens life to new possibility. That you catastrophe, he called it, is what we have In the final verses in Mark, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we're reading here is hope is emerging when and where it was most unlikely. And so what I want to do is I want to pose this question for us to consider this morning, and it's this. The question is, 
what do we do in that hopeless space between tragedy and triumph? What do we do with that space Friday night and Saturday between death and new life? Notice something. It's, it's often Friday that's talked about and Sunday that's talked about, but no one ever talks about Saturday. See, Saturday was the day of rest. Saturday for the Jewish people was the day of Sabbath. It was literally the most inconvenient day in the week. Because no matter how busy you were or how much stuff you had to get done, there was a certain moment where you were forced, you were told to put down your work. So what can you do on Sabbath? Here's what you can do on Sabbath. You can trust. Sabbath is the time where we trust that when I put this down, Jesus is not going to. When I rest, God does not slumber. When I hand it over, Jesus secures it in his hands. But the truth is, trusting God, which is really at the heart of the Christian faith, is often harder than us just trying to fix things ourselves. Trust is harder than just digging in there and trying to fix it. Um, There have been times in my life where I feel like I'm down on my hands and on my knees, desperately trying to revive things. And I've told Michelle this uh, recently that there are areas in my life where I feel like I'm that person in the movies where I'm down giving like CPR, trying to resuscitate. And everyone is standing around just knowing that it's dead. And they're like, Let's just, let's just call it. It's dead. And I'm down desperately. No, no, no. We just, we just got to keep trying. We just got to keep trying. And so they're allowing me to keep trying because they know I've, I've got to say that I tried. But here's an honest confession. I don't want to live that way. Um, Jesus says earlier in Mark, unless something dies, it can't be raised. Unless something falls into the ground, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it it remains dead and alone. But when it falls into the ground and it, it dies, that's when it grows up and it bears much fruit. God has not called us to spend our lives trying to revive things. You anxious? You tired? You weary? Remember, God has not called us to desperately live our lives stressing about reviving things. God has called us to trust in his resurrection power. Listen to how one author describes the resurrection. Resurrection is God's capacity to take a circumstance of complete shutdown and hopelessness and make something new from it. To take something, a circumstance of complete shutdown and hopelessness and make something new from it. Not just when things are bad, not just when things are on the brink, but when things are dead, when things are done for. This is what Jesus and God, uh, God through Jesus Christ has done on the first Easter morning, and this is what God continues to do in our lives and in our world today. He takes dead things and he brings about life. And so here's the big idea this morning. What I want to do is I want to look at this passage for about the first half, and then the second half sort of apply this very, very Practically, but here's the big idea that ties it all together. God takes a hopeless ending and exchanges it for endless hope. By all measures, this is a very hopeless ending, but this is what God does. He takes hopeless endings and exchanges it for endless 
hope. Now, something that, that we must uh, note here, that, and it's this, that the resurrection account does not begin in the day, Sunday morning of the resurrection, but really in the night, in the wake of the death of Jesus Christ. And I've intentionally chosen to, to start our teaching there, in the wake of Christ's death, in the darkness, where the followers of Jesus are now left to fight their despair, to, to press on in their lives, to carry out their devotion to Jesus Christ, despite all of their disappointments and all of the questions about what now. I've been with friends and family members who have lost someone very close to them to death. And um, on the night of, those, of the day where that loved one dies, there's a very certain, very practical side of the brain that really kicks in in those hours following the death of a loved one where someone doesn't necessarily allow themselves to grieve yet, but instead what they do is they get down to business. They begin to get things in order. They're on the phone with the funeral home. They're on the phone with the florist. They're calling family. Oh gosh, I got to write the eulogy. All of these different things to get in order. And this is what we see here in Mark. Joseph of Arimathea is a man described as longing and waiting and anticipating the kingdom of God, someone who saw something extremely promising in this Jesus Christ, but now he's on a late-night mission to secure the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. We see Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Joseph, as well as Salome. They are running around scrambling to get items like spices and oil in order to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. What's going on here? They're preparing for a funeral. They're in those hours following the wake of someone that they cared for, someone that they loved, someone that they admired, and now they're frantically getting all the details in order preparing for a funeral. And as we look at this, this account here, as we look at these men and women in this account, there's a certain sense of hopeless busyness that hangs over the community of believers here in, in the time in between, in the Friday night and the Saturday a hopeless busyness. And I believe that the scene that we're looking at today is probably a very accurate picture of much of life for us today. Hopeless busyness that has been prompted by deep-seated disappointment. Perhaps you too had high hopes of what life could be. But somewhere along the way, those hopes were dashed to pieces. You had dreamed of what life would be like on the other side of breakthrough, but that breakthrough never came, and now you're left to pick up the pieces. But you know that life can't just stop, so you keep moving, because that's what we do. We just keep going. And you're not sure about why you keep doing the things that you do, but you just know that you got to keep doing them. And sooner than later, busyness becomes the only way that you're able to cope with all of that deep-seated disappointment over the things and over the way that things turned out. Busyness becomes the way that you suppress those deep, deep disappointments. I just put my head down and I keep going. And many, for many of us, like the men and women in this, this passage, and here's what I think the point is, like the men and women in this passage, many of us are living life like we're preparing for a funeral, 
when Jesus has told us to live life in light of a resurrection. Isn't it ironic that in the very same moments, the very same moments that people are preparing for a funeral, God is at work to raise his son from the dead. And what this tells us is that when all you see is your hopes dashed to pieces, when you are tempted to give in to despair, when you're tempted to give in to worry and doubt and get frantic, Jesus is still raised. And for the believer, the truth of the resurrection is always working side by side with your circumstances, no matter how bleak things may be. The truth of the resurrection is still at work in the world and your life, no matter how hidden that work of God may be. This is good news because it reminds us that nothing that you will face can undo the resurrection. Nothing that you will experience in your life will make the reality of Christ's victory over sin and Satan and death untrue. No amount of disappointment, no amount of doubt, nothing that you will face will undo the power and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is good news, but this is also sad news. Because as illustrated here, it means that you can be a long-term devoted follower of Jesus Christ and yet continue to function as if he's dead. You can believe in the resurrection in your theology and in your heart, but in your Monday morning, you wake up as if Christ is still in the tomb. We at times live as though Jesus is dead. In our giving into fear, we live as though Jesus is dead. In our giving in to constant worry, we live as though Jesus is dead. In our unforgiveness, we live as though Jesus is dead. In our allowing our disappointments to rule and dictate our lives, we live as though Jesus is dead. There's a story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was sort of the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And uh, much of church history is sort of, writ- sort of written about his theology and about his writings, but very little is, is really mentioned about his family life. But there is a very profound dynamic between Martin Luther and his wife, Katerina. And Katerina was someone that was extremely influential in the life of Martin Luther. And once Martin Luther got in one of these sort of depressed funks that he was notorious for, He was in this long season of despair, and no matter how much Kate tried to counsel him and talk him out of it, he just was was in that funk, and he wouldn't snap out of it. And so she got this idea in her head, and what she did was she traveled upstairs, and she, she got changed, and she came back down dressing all black from head to toe. And Martin turns, and he said, notice that she's changed, and he asks her, are you going to a funeral? In which case she replied, no, but since you act like God is dead, I figured I'd join you in your grieving. And he got the hint. (laughs) And he snapped out of it. And we need to snap out of it. Jesus has not given his disciples instruction for his burial. In my study of Mark, I didn't see any instructions for the burial. But he has given the disciples instructions on how to anticipate the resurrection. How to live into the reality that Jesus Christ conquers the grave. 
And this is a reality that we must all as a church, as people, learn to live into as well. The truth is this does not come natural. No one naturally is inclined to live into the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a way of thinking and it's a way of living that the Spirit of God must form in our minds, in our hearts, and in our practices. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is look at this passage and note three things that we must do to ensure that we are living in awareness of the resurrection, that we are not living as though Christ is dead, but living into the true reality that Christ is risen from the grave so that we are not those who search for the living among the dead. How do we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? First, show up. We need to show up. This is going to get very brass tacks here. There is something remarkable about the resurrection account, and it has to do with the fact that it was a group of women that were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And this is remarkable because in this time, first century, in this place, a woman's testimony would not have held up in court. A woman's testimony would have been considered disreputable. So if you're going to start a movement, and you've got this really important information that you want to get out there, you typically would not be inclined to gather women to be the first witnesses. And despite this fact, despite what's going on here culturally, the honor of being the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the honor of being the first recipients of the message of the resurrected Christ go to the women. And This is deeply dignifying. This is deeply honoring to women. This is essentially a reversal of the status quo and showing what Jesus ushers in is a completely new way of things. I'm doing a new thing. And we've talked about that in years past. I talk about that almost every single Easter. So this is very remarkable about this story. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to miss the most obvious thing. In fact, it is so obvious that we are probably all going to be tempted to miss it. Look with me in verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Again, so obvious that we may miss it. Mary, Mary, and Salome are the first witnesses of the resurrection because they're the ones that showed up. They were those who refused to allow their despair and their disappointment to spoil their devotion to Christ. Now, They didn't necessarily show up expecting a resurrection. There's nothing in the text that leads us to believe that they came prepared to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. But let's not miss the fact that they showed up on this Sunday morning. Again, I'm going to get very practical. I'm not sure why you are here today. And I don't mean that negatively. I'm just not sure exactly why every single person is here. And some Sundays, it it just never ceases to amaze me that people continue (laughs) to show up. And there are probably a number of reasons why we're here, you know. But let me tell you why I think that we should be here. 
We should be here because we need to be open to Jesus and open to the possibilities of his resurrection. We shouldn't be here expecting Jesus to fulfill and meet all of our expectations. That's unreasonable. Our will doesn't always align with God's will, but we should be here expectant of all that God desires to do and open to what we may discover in him. And how I see it is this, is that the way that you can be sure that you do miss out on what God wants to do in this world and miss out on what God wants to do in this church and miss out on what God wants to do in this city and miss out maybe even on what God wants to do in your life is you just stop showing up. The way to be sure to miss it is just to stop showing up. Stop showing up when it gets hard. Stop showing up when it doesn't exactly make sense. Stop showing up when things don't match your expectations. Stop showing up. Can I be honest for a second? I'll wait. Can I be honest for a second? Okay. Um, Over the last, so I've had the privilege of pastoring for a decade. And the decade that I've been pastoring just happens to be during the greatest mass exodus of young people in the church. Great times to be alive. Um, And as I've seen over the last decade is a steady stream of men and women and families giving up on their devotion to Christ and giving up on their devotion to his church. And the truth is, a lot of those people are not those who have renounced their faith. In fact, I cannot recall anyone that just outright renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. These are those who just drifted. These are those who just, at some point, allowed their disappointments to rule their devotion, to overcome their devotion to Jesus Christ. And if I'm being honest, I don't know a single person who stopped showing up that would say that today they're now experiencing more joy, more fulfillment, and more hope in their life. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I have not met the person. And I don't know very many families that stop showing up where their children are now thriving in their faith and passionately devoted to Jesus Christ. So let's, let's, let's consider this question. How do we expect to, to raise our children to be men and women of faithfulness when we can't even show up on a Sunday morning? How do we expect to disciple our children in devotion to Christ when devotion to Christ and his church keeps getting pushed down the list of priorities in our lives? It's just not logical. Here's another thing I've seen over the last decade, and I've had a lot of conversations with Michelle about this. And especially lately, and and it's this. I've spent too much time trying to convince professing Christians to keep showing up and not nearly enough time empowering and encouraging those who are here and spending time outreaching those who are not here yet. Does that mean that we forget those who have drifted? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, my time is so limited. So limited. 
And what I've found is that my own personal ability to convince people to keep showing up is even more limited. I'm not very good at that. All I know to do is just sort of kind of like revert back to guilt. Like, where were you, huh? How was the Niners game? Hope you enjoyed it. My ability to convince people to keep showing up is very limited. Very limited. And so a passage that God has, is using to break me free, and this is my problem. This is, this is all of our problem, I guess, but this is really my problem here. And the passage that God is continuing to use in my life to break me free from this, uh, this worrisome pattern is found in John chapter 12. It's Jesus speaking, and he says this. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, what he's referring to is his death and resurrection. When I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Who will draw people to Christ? It will be Christ. Who will be the one to convince people that he is worthy? It will be Jesus. My words will fall short. The resurrection of Jesus Christ will never. So why are you here? I'm not sure why you're here, but hopefully it's not because someone keeps convincing you. Hopefully sooner than later, it's because Jesus is convincing. And reality, uh, just by the way, this is my last chance to say everything I wanted to say in Mark, but I never got a chance to, by the way. This is called the junk drawer of Mark. <laughs> reality, you're going to have to pray that for the Spirit's power and God's grace, grace to strengthen you to keep showing up. Because no one can do that for you. You're going to have to own that. You're going to have to own that for yourself. You're going to have to own that for your community. You're going to have to own that for your family. You're going to have to determine sooner than later that Jesus just simply is worth it. No questions asked. And the reality here is that Christ rose to awaken you, not just to a new life, but to empower you to step into it. He didn't raise from the uh, grave to, to show you this like theoretical life of commitment. He raised from the grave to bring you into it and to empower you in it. Listen to the words the Apostle Paul writing to the church, the Colossians. He says, for this I toil, listen to his language, struggling with all his, speaking of God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. There's a transition that needs to occur, no longer Resting on the power of others to convince you to keep showing up. And now no longer resting on your own ability to keep showing up. You're going to have to tap into a greater power than yours and the people around you. You're going to have to tap into the power of the resurrected Christ at work within you. Amen? Show up. Secondly, look in. Look in. Verses 3 through 4. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. What are they talking about this Sunday morning when they're on the way to the tomb? Remember, Mark is about immediacy, expedience. He is like, he's not stopping to like, let you smell the roses. He's on one, one thing, now the next, now the next. Which means Mark never wastes any real estate in his letter. There's not like a conversation that's trivial. Oh, I just wanted every word intentional. So this means 
What he's doing is he's consolidating, he's condensing their entire conversation into one statement, and it's a question, who will roll away the stone for us? Friends, there are very real hurdles that we're going to face in life. And I love it. Mark says, and it was very large. Financial struggle. Uh, The hurdle may be relational. That hurdle may be a physical ailment that you are battling right now or a loved one is, is really struggling through. And they're real. I mean, it's real. The stone was there. The stone was real. The stone was big. And so what happens is we start to allow these very real, very large hurdles to begin to consume us, to consume our thoughts, to consume our dreams, to consume even our conversations with others. What what we're seeing here, isn't this us? I mean, think about this. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting The scriptures describe Christ bearing the weight of the entire world, the sins of the world, and we're worried about how that stone ahead of us is going to roll away. Jesus secures our eternity, and we're stressing about tomorrow. Jesus transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God, and we're worried about whether or not we're going to get the job. And we're worried about whether or not we are going to get accepted by XYZ school. And we're worried about whether or not we'll be in a relationship next year. We need to remember that the biggest hurdles that we could ever face, namely sin and Satan and death and separation from God, have been overcome through Jesus. Those hurdles are already obliterated. Those stones have been rolled away and this is why we, like these women, need to look in. Not just once, but we need to continue to look in. Look at me in verses five through six. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. We believe this is an angelic host. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Again, that's where the church would often say, amen. 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 He's not there. He's everywhere, but he's not there. See the place where they laid him. See that? He's not just saying he's not here. He says, come look. So here's a question that we need to consider. Why was the stone then rolled back? Why was the stone rolled back? It's not because Jesus needed the stone to be rolled away to get out. We, we read elsewhere in the Gospels, in, in the Gospel of John, that the physically resurrected Jesus Christ was able to walk through walls. He doesn't need the stone rolled back. It's not like Jesus is in there. He's like, Gabriel, always late. Oh, my goodness. Open this door right now, young man. He doesn't need the stone rolled back. So clearly it's not so Jesus can get in. Why then? It's so that they could look in. Why was the stone rolled back? It's so that we could look in. Friend, you overwhelmed? See the place where they laid him. You fearful? See the place where you laid him. You bitter and disappointed? See the place where they laid him. You hopeless? And on the brink of giving up, 
See the place where they laid him. And let life be put in right perspective. As you see the empty tomb, as you see the stone rolled back, and as you experience the renewal of your hope, show up, look in. Third and finally, go tell. Go tell. I read about the story just recently. I believe it was in the BBC. Uh, it was in 1944. Uh, a particular Japanese soldier was sent to a small island of Lubang in um, the Western Philippines. And he was given a very specific mission to complete a task. But this was 1944. So if you know your history, this was uh, just at the very end of the war. And soon after, the Allied forces ended up defeating the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in the later stages of the war. But this soldier, who was a lieutenant, ended up evading capture. And while most of, and eventually all of the Japanese troops on this small island ended up withdrawing or surrendering, this soldier did not. And listen to this. For 29 years, he lived in hiding in the jungle carrying out his mission because he still believed that the war was going on. And it wasn't until 1974, not 47, 74, that he finally laid down arms. And this is why it wasn't until only after his former commanding officer was now a very, very old man, personally traveled from Japan to the Philippines in order to call him out, personally out, to inform him that the war was over and it was safe to come out. The gospel writer, John, tells us that on the day of the resurrection, as the women show up, and the women are present at the tomb, the disciples are locked up in the house, hiding in fear. And so the angel of the Lord tells the women this in verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so what we see when we put these together is that the resurrection of Jesus is the good news that the kingdom of God prevails. The resurrection is the good news that you can come out of hiding that Jesus has secured the victory, that he has brought peace, that hope isn't lost, that death doesn't have the last word, that God through Christ is making all things new. And this is the message that we have been entrusted with. This is the message of the gospel that now has been given to us, the church, to personally, like that commanding officer, go out of our way, cross Lengths, whether they're socioeconomic barriers or cross the street, whatever they may be, personally to go to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers and our friends and beyond and tell them that the war is over, that Christ has the victory, that Christ has died, but he is also risen. The kingdom prevails. But notice something. Notice their response in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Again, isn't this us? Go and tell. 
Mm, no, maybe not. I'm too afraid. It's too costly. Um, I don't know if I know enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I don't want the embarrassment. You don't understand the dynamics in the workplace. There are laws about this sort of thing. You know, like every excuse in the book we come up with. Isn't this us? Go and tell them. We're like, mm, mm, no. So, <clears throat> I love this. This is the very last verse in the original manuscripts of Mark. If you, if you look at your Bible, there's a little note, a big gap, and it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. This is all he wrote. And uh, it's believed that these were actually scribal commentaries that were, you know, sort of added like, like a study Bible would have that just over time accidentally sort of found its way into the manuscripts. And uh, many believe that this is, this is it. This is where it ends. Which means that the entire Gospel of Mark, everything that we have like spent the entire year studying together, ends with uncertainty. It's like all of us that like faithfully watched Lost all the way to the end, and you're like, ABC, you totally flopped. Gosh. And so it leaves a bunch of questions. Here's the questions it leaves What happens? Remember, this is the first gospel written. This is the first, chronologically first written New Testament book. This is all the church had. And imagine being the first century reader saying, Mark, what are you doing? What happens? What happens next? Did they actually see him? Did he show up in Galilee? Did they tell anyone? If they don't tell this good news, does it, does it mean that like, the, it, it all died with these, these three women? And so at first glance, this is a horrible way to end a story, let's be honest. I mean, it ends, it, literally, think about this. It ends like this. He says, go and tell, and they're like, nah, they're afraid. All that we've worked so hard on this year, just like, eh, eh. But if you think about it a little bit longer, this is a perfect way to conclude because it reminds us that life in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't always bring certainty. And not every question is going to be answered yet. Mark concludes with an open ending. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and please listen to me, is not the end of the story. But it's just the beginning. Jesus is not in the tomb. He's in the world. He's not stuck in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Galilee and beyond. And the story is continuing to unfold. This is a story today that is unfolding in our midst and has now welcomed us in to be a part of. It's open-ended because Mark is saying, welcome in. I'm just getting started. And what this conclusion does is it forces us to consider our own participation. Questions like this. What will we do with this news? We've spent a year in Mark. What are we going to do to steward that? How are we going to respond 
Are we just going to go on our merry way and say it's Advent season and just totally walk away from all that God has instilled in our community through this year? What are we going to do? Will we go into the world with the life-giving news that Jesus is the king who died for our sins and rose for our, our justification? Will we obey or will we give in to fear? Will we live life preparing for a funeral or will we live life as a community anticipating a resurrection? We like these women. We, we need to choose where we're going to go from here. The question mark doesn't just end for them. The question mark now comes to us. And the truth is, like these first witnesses of the resurrection, we are those who are also slow to obey. We're not giving these women a hard time because we see ourselves in this story. But here's the good news, and let's not miss this. For as much uncertainty as there is at the end of the story and as many question marks as this leaves us, the fact that we're reading the gospel of Mark today is evidence that God's resurrection power overcomes human failure. They could have totally bombed this thing, but Jesus didn't allow that. And you could totally bomb your life. But there's something greater at work. The compelling nature of his grace is more compelling than your reluctance. And our future is bright because of the, the kingdom of God does not depend on your power. And it does not depend on our collective power. And it doesn't depend on the human race's power. The future is bright, friend, because the kingdom of God depends on the power of the resurrected Christ who overcomes our failure. He's not dead. He's alive. He's on his way to Galilee. He's at work in the world. He's even here in Stockton. What are we going to do? The answer is yours. Let's pray.